Well, good morning. Such a joy to be with God's people on such a special day. And I'm thankful for a gospel that doesn't change and for a gospel that is going out to the four corners of the earth and a gospel that we will celebrate forever. If you've not had a chance, I encourage you please to turn your cell phones to silence so that we don't have any interruptions during the service. We're streaming live and we'd like to keep it from having interruptions that we could avoid. And those of you that are joining us online this morning, good morning. Thank you for being with us. And as we celebrate the Reformation in our hearts and as we study the Word of God, we're thankful that you're with us. So welcome, and wherever you are, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and let's study the Word of God together. Many of us perhaps have been to a, a circus or a carnival, a fair, state fair, whatever, where they have wooden cutouts. These cutouts might be the paintings of a muscle man or a, a beautiful lady, a ferocious animal, a space object, or something else. And there's a hole where the head or face would be where you can stick your head and face in and have a picture of what you would look like as that particular object. They're almost always funny because the head usually does not match the body. But what if we were to have a wooden cutout of the Evangelical Free Church of Orville. We who gather together here would be the body, and in the place where the head would be, we would have an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would the world laugh at such a great disparity between the head and the body? Or would it stand in awe of a human body that so closely resembles its divine head? We know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that we as his body are called to live in conformity to the nature of our head, to live under his authority, to submit to him, to become more and more like him in word and action and deed and attitude and thought and plans. And in Matthew 18, over the past several weeks, and we'll continue that this morning, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what the new covenant community, the church, should look like, what it should act like as his followers. And we've seen that this is indeed a very challenging chapter to each one of us. Jesus began by challenging us that we need to have a humble, childlike faith in Christ, a childlike faith that is completely dependent upon the Father, that is helpless and indeed is of a low status. But then as he says that we must have that childlike faith, to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, not only are we to be humble before God, but we must exhibit humility one before another. And so he goes on and says, that the people that I am bringing to you, receive them, don't, don't push them away, don't deceive them, don't mislead them, but enfold them and teach them the truth and the ways of God. Don't cause them to stumble in any way. And do not despise them as we saw last week that somehow they've become a burden to the way we want to do things or somehow they're disrupting the status quo, but we, we recognize that God is at work in bringing people to us. But if they wander away, then we need to do what we can to go and get them, to bring them back, to find out what, is ha <coughs> what has happened so that they can be restored because we saw that the Father does not will that any of these little ones should be lost. Well, today as we continue on this theme of living out the new covenant life, as Jesus shows us, 
we come to the difficult topic of how to deal with sin in the body of Christ, how to deal with sin in the church that has reached a point of causing division and dissension. And I think we'll agree that it is a challenging passage, a very difficult passage. And so that's why we're reminded that if Jesus is the head and we are the body, then he calls us to sit at his feet and to listen and know how to respond. And so with that as a sober and yet reflective thought and introduction, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for today that we'll be studying from Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And the truthful and holy word of God says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord given for the instruction and edification of his people. Let us receive it accordingly. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, it's good for us to remind ourselves and confess that we are a people of the sola scriptura, the authority of God in his word alone. And so this morning, as you speak to us through this word, we put you in the first place and ask that Jesus would be Lord in our midst and the Spirit would guide and help us. We are a needy people, Father, but you are a good God who can provide. And so we turn to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Jesus has been teaching the disciples about what covenant life should look like. Summarize how the church should live in light of the truth of the gospel. That we're not to be overly divisive and we're to receive those who come and not deceive them. And, and we're to help them and receive them with the humility that we need to have before the Lord. And then we get to this passage that continues in that theme and in that frame of mind this morning. Perhaps one of the most difficult that we see in the book of Matthew. But it's not difficult because it cannot be understood. It's difficult because it's hard for us to live it out in practice. Now the good thing is that as an evangelical free church, we have established for a long time the pattern of expositional preaching. Line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. And the reason why that's a good thing is because it causes us to not skip over the difficult passages that we might not want to deal with. If we believe that the whole word of God is a gift from God and for the counsel of God and for the good of his people, then we need to submit to its authority and move through each line as difficult as it may or may not be. And as we mark Reformation Weekend, 
we remember then what it was that set the reformers apart. You see, the idea of church in those days was one of just a couple of men who had some type of power and they could have all the controls and they thought they really did have the keys to heaven. And the Pope would issue such audacious things as this year in Europe, nobody gets into heaven unless they all surrender to me. But because we have the word of God and we recognize that it is the word of God that is our authority, one of the marks of a true church is the faithful preaching of the word. And the second thing that they said was a sign of a true church was the proper practice of the ordinances. That's why we have the Lord's table. That's why we practice baptism, because we recognize that those are the ordinances that God has given that we are to practice. But the third one for them was the practice of church discipline. And all of us then at this point get a little queasy in our stomachs and a little weak in our knees. And so we need the Lord's help as we look at this important passage. So our first major point as you follow along in your sermon outline this morning is the steps in dealing with sin in the church. The steps in dealing with sin in the church. And I think we agree that this is a challenging passage on several fronts. First, we must recognize that it has a context. There's a flow of thought that is happening here as Jesus is unfolding Matthew 18. It fits within the overall counsel of God and needs to fit in then with how we understand different passages and different things that talk about different situations, dealing with sin, dealing with confrontation, dealing with conflict. It also is a challenge in the fact that there are a couple of well-known verses that often get plucked out of their context and used widely and often by people in a way that is not correct. And so a text that is wrongly used is a text that is wrongly learned or at least wrongly taught. And so we need to grow in our understanding then in the use of the word of God. And we'll see as we move through this passage that they'll be dealing with sin and confrontation, exhortation, reconciliation, but at each step, the goal is the same. Repentance of sin, recognition of wrongdoing, the offer of forgiveness, working towards reconciliation. And if we look at this passage in light of the character of God and who he is in his holiness, but gentleness, and his justice, but love, all of these things working together, we will see that this is actually a passage of love given to the, from the Father to his church for his glory, for the well-being of his people, and for the promotion of unity and purity in the church. So as we look at these steps then, they'll just fall right out of the text. The first we see is encountering the person. And so our text begins with this short phrase, if your brother sins against you. I find it interesting that Jesus begins by calling attention to brothers. He's dealing with people that are in the church. And you recall if we go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has said that the church, those that are believers in him, are the first family. He, said, he calls us that we're to love the Lord even above our father and mother and sister and brothers, that we are to obey his call and follow in his steps. For he said, the one who does the will of my father is my mother and sister and brother. And so this is being addressed then to believers. And you remember the context of Matthew 18? It's addressed to the whole church. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And I find in my experience, no matter where it's been, in, in West Africa, the Middle East, serving the Chicago area, Europe, now here in Northern California, that we need to focus on the word sin. 
Because sometimes personal preferences are at play. Sometimes differences of opinion are at play. Sometimes different understandings of customs and traditions are at play. And it's not difference of opinion that is sin. Or different view of the way things ought to be. See, Jesus has already warned us several times in several places about not placing the traditions of men ahead of the word of God. And so as Dr. Daniel Doriani reminds us, this, the topic is not hurt feelings, nor is it annoying behavior. The topic is sin. And sin is a clear violation of the character and will of God, a clear violation of one of his commands. It is actually wrong behavior according to the character of God. So if your brother sins against you, so there needs to be recognition that there's actually sin that is taking place. But then we take a step back and we say, does that mean then that in every sin, in every situation, we've got to constantly be going and, and confronting one another? Maybe, but I think we also need to take into account what the Word of God says elsewhere. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossae, says, And put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So we see these Christian attributes that come from the Spirit of God that he lays out. And then he says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So I think what we see Paul and Peter and Jesus would certainly agree is that the practice of forgiveness is to be a way of life for us as believers. Showing forbearance, which means patience, gentle understanding, humble kindness one to another. It means having a predisposition, if you will, of love and acceptance towards one another. Not one of record-keeping or judgment or rejection. And I think if we put this together, what Paul and, and Jesus and James and Peter are all saying, as we put together how the body of Christ is to work, it means we don't have to ratchet everything up to a big deal, everything that happens. That we can be in the practice of forgiving, practice of letting go, practice of overlooking, practice of bearing with one another, and just being a forgiving person as a way of life. The context is one of humility. We must be humble like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. In a similar way, then, we need to be humble with one another, which will dial down the tension, dial down the record-keeping, dial down the judgmental attitudes, because we recognize who we are before God. And I think another thing that would help us is understanding a clear difference between the idea of giving offense and taking offense. Truth can be spoken, truth can be given, with no intention to actually be offensive on the part of the speaker, but the listener may take it such. Now, some things are just going to be offensive. If I tell people that there is a living hell, there is a real hell to where sinners will go and experience eternal punishment, that's going to be offensive to some people. But it does not mean that an offense is given as it is shared. Sometimes we need to take a step back and recalibrate what has just been said or what has just happened. Was this an offense that was intended or was it an offense that was taken? 
Just because an offense is taken does not automatically mean that a sin has been committed. And I think if we were to already take that disposition of love, acceptance, forbearance, ready to forgive, ready to let go, ready to take the under position, ready to serve one another, it would already begin to reduce the tension and trial that goes on around Matthew 18. But we do sin against each other. There is real sin that happens. There is real things that we can do against one another that is not just offensive, it is wrong. And in that case, then, we do well to listen to the Apostle Paul who says we need to speak the truth in love. So we see the two points there. We need to speak, yes. And what do we speak? The truth, yes. And how do we speak it? In love. And if we've ever tried to do that, we know it's a lot harder to do than it seems. Because when we're upset about something, when we're angry about something, it's really hard for us to speak the truth in love because in our minds we think, okay, now I'm going to put on my prophet hat and I'm going to put him in his place. But what is the goal? Is the goal to just win an argument, win a cause, win a situation, or is it to win the brother? And so Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, Lord just doesn't make it any easier on us, does it? Alone. Because the problem is, it's right at this point where the process begins to break down. Right at the beginning. Instead of being given a chance to work, words begin to fly. Words get shared. Things get passed around. Circles are enlarged. Allies are formed. And then we start listening to the ideas of others and their thoughts, and it stirs passions in our hearts, and we have, we've already moved beyond the first step. You see how much we need the gospel? If we understand the gospel of grace so that it can flow through our lives, so that we can start with a disposition of acceptance and love, Proverbs 29 says, argue your case with your neighbor himself and not reveal another man's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. As I was studying this passage, I came across this quote from R.C. Sproul. He said, it is human nature to avoid the confrontation and seek support. But Jesus said not to do that for such behavior is destructive. The larger the circle gets, Right from the beginning, the more the sin is known about, the more resentful it is likely that one or the other is to become and will harden his heart. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That practice in itself would eliminate a lot of the tensions and struggles that we have in our lives. And Jesus says, if you do that, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And is, is that my attitude? Is that your attitude when we go into this situation? Or are there other things in play? The goal of the first step is to bear with one another. Confess to one another. Forgive one another. And then move on. The goal is restoration, not retribution. And so Paul reminds us in Galatians 6.1 that if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see how that plays into exactly what Jesus is saying here. 
be careful how you go about it. Have the proper attitude from the beginning so you don't fall into the practice. Because what's the goal? What do you do? What do I do? When somebody has, in fact, sinned against us. Are we starting to load up and get ready to come for bear? Do we start already arguing in our minds what the strategy is going to be so that I win and you lose? So you take time to consider what was behind it. Will I give a chance for the other person to respond? Will I give a chance for the other person to explain? And so all of us feel the weight of this. And so what do we do? Well, the first thing is recognize our weakness. Recognize our tendencies. Confess where we've not done it the right way. And go back to the gospel and say, Lord, would you forgive me? Have mercy on me. And then apply the scriptures at our scene which talk about what? Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to reflect, quick to have mercy, slow to respond. The goal is the spiritual welfare of the other person. It's not to win an argument, it's to win a brother. And yet our culture works against us a hundred times every day in different ways. Because we're told to get even. We put it on bumper stickers. I don't get mad, I get even. We carry around in our hearts what has happened to us. And we keep reliving it and reliving it. And it gets worse each time we relive it. Because we didn't deal with it when we could have dealt with it. And if you carry around anger in your heart long enough, it turns to resentment, which turns to bitterness. And bitterness becomes very difficult to root out and to deal with. And so each of us then finds ourselves on our knees before the Lord and says, Lord, help me in this situation. Another thing that happens, if it's not remaining between that person alone, but it's gone public, it's hard to back down into a private setting, accusations that have been flying publicly. Public accusations do not promote private listening. And so we need to minimize the exposure at the beginning if the goal really is to win the person and to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Go to them alone and deal with it. And if that happens... And I'm pleased to say that there have been times where I've said something that was misunderstood or I said something that was wrong and people came gently to me and approached me with it, confessed my sin, asked for forgiveness, it was dealt with, it was done. And that's what happens when we go to one another. And it's dealt with at that point. And once it's dealt with, it's dealt with. It doesn't need to be brought up again. And so the plea then is for us to Listen to the Lord and search our own hearts and to use the same standard for ourselves that we're tempted to use for others. Because left to myself and my proud, obstinate nature, I'll judge myself with grace and according to my intentions. But I'll judge you with the law and your actions and condemnation. I'll judge myself by what I intended to do, and, and then I'll pass the test. But I'll judge you by your actions, and I will declare you guilty and judge you. And because now I've judged you, anger takes over. 
But we need to be reminded that anger is a dangerous weapon. And anger can be like the, the man who jumps into a powerful, responsive sports car. And he jumps in and he guns the mortar and he goes racing off and it's only then he realizes that the brakes are out of order. So the anger that we can use can become even more harmful than the initial act itself. So Jesus offers us the solution here. How can we judge others by the same standards with which we want to use for ourselves? Like, give me the benefit of the doubt. Okay, then I need to extend the benefit of the doubt to others. How can we do that? And Jesus says by listening. Three times he mentions the word listen in this passage. Now, in this case, the brother doesn't always listen, but at least listening is an important part. And so how should one listen? Think we should listen with our ears? What is actually being said to us? But we also listen to our eyes as we interact. What, what's, the, what's going on with the person? What do, what do I see happening in their lives? What's, what's more here, if there is anything more? And we listen with our hearts. And does it add up to sin? If it is, deal with it. Does it add up to a difference of opinion? Then deal with it. But go to the person with humility, with gentleness, with, with mercy, and not be quick to invite other people in. Deal with it at that level so that people never know. And if that happens, we won't ever know, but we'll find out that there's more harmony and unity and love and community and common unity among us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens if you're the guilty one or I'm the guilty one, that I have sinned? Well, then take time to listen. Is there truth in what is being said? Is there a reasonable solution here? I was impacted a long time ago when I first joined the ministry of what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ. And the founder, Dr. Bill Bright, was talking to the new staff. And he said, in ministry, you'll have a lot of blessings. But in ministry, you'll also have a lot of challenges. And one of the challenges will be is criticism that you'll receive. But he said, I want you to listen to your critics and to discern the truth in what they're saying. And you may find that you'll learn more from your critics than from your friends. Not every issue has to be brought up to DEFCON 4 with a declaration of war. But if we're willing to receive one who comes to us and we're willing to go and we're looking for a win-win, then the brother is the one who can be won. That's the first step. That's the longest step as far as what I'm talking about this morning. The second one is enlarging the circle. After engaging the person, we have enlarging the circle. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, verse 16. And while we may hope and pray that a one-on-one -on -one encounter will solve the issue the fact is it often doesn't. The people sometimes are slow to, are, are slow to admit uh, they're wrong or their sin or they don't want to repent or they want to blame others or, or, or we're all good at this. We, we know how this is done. But in the context of Matthew 18 where humble recognition is required for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, then a prideful response and an unlistening response to one who is actually confronting us over sin is inconsistent with the gospel that we claim to proclaim. Because if we're honest with the Lord, which is what we need to be, then we already know we're sinners. 
And there's only one who's perfect. And there's only one Savior. And there's only one who has done it right every time. And it's not me and it's not you. So that means then that if I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace, then I should be willing to admit when there's sin in my life because I know I'm not yet all that I'm supposed to be, all that I will be, and Christ is still working on me. So if there's a sin that is affecting now this relationship and an honest effort has been made to repent and to forgive, but there's no positive response, Jesus says, well, take two more along with you. It's not necessarily two that have witnessed the original sin that was committed. It's two that will come along to see, though they may be witnesses. It's two that will come along to see that refusal of sin is happening, refusal to recognize sin is happening. And because this is written to the whole church, you are all deputized to do that. We are all deputized as the priesthood of believers. It doesn't have to be an official church leader. Because Paul, uh, Jesus is, is addressing the whole church at this point, And he's saying this is what the church should be like. Now, there's something very wise in what Jesus says here. First of all, he came to fulfill the law. And this is a direct fulfillment of the law. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And in the verses that follow, it's used as a legal protection to all parties that are involved. So that the accuser and the accused have the opportunity then to have witnesses who can see what's going on. And Paul carries out this conviction in his writings, and so does the writer of Hebrews, for this net requirement of two or three witnesses is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And it's hope then that if two or three come, there'll be resolution. But if there's not, we get to the third step, which is engaging the church. We have encountering the person, enlarging the circle, engaging the church, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if he won't listen to this small group, then you need to bring it that the behavior now is impacting beyond just a couple of people. It's impacting the community. And yes, at this point, church leaders need to get involved, but so do others. The goal remains the same, however. Humility, repentance, reconciliation, restoration. It's hope that if, it's, if this is brought to this level that people will recognize that this Sin is affecting a larger situation than just a few people. It's not just a personal grievance. Now, this may have been, in fact, easier to do in the early church where home house churches were very common, usually smaller in number, and they, they broke bread together almost on a daily basis, and they would live together, and it was very easy to figure out who was offended, who had offended, what the sin was, what needed to be dealt with, and they could deal with this. But even if we're not the first century church, we're still a church under the authority of the Word of God. But sadly, even at this point, some will still not listen. I love to study church history. You can learn a lot of good things from church history. You can learn a lot of bad things from church history. And this particular issue is something that has not been practiced very well or very often throughout church history. And it's been a difficult subject throughout church history. Sadly, there are some people that would rather cut themselves off from fellowship because they know they and they alone are right, and so they will not listen to the church. 
And as we contemplate that situation, then we should pray with them and for them that they would come to grips with the warning of Proverbs 29, that he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You see, discipline is intended to be an act of love on the part of our Father. We are told that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And discipline then becomes part of that process where Christ shows his love for the church. But most look on and say, this is just cruel, this is inhumane, this is unjust. And so the process doesn't get followed properly. But Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now the term tax collector and Gentile came to symbolize those who were outside the family of faith. Those who opposed the things of God, those who opposed the people of God, those who opposed the church of God. And, and Jesus says, if he will not listen even to the church, put him out of fellowship and treat him as an unbeliever. Now the goal remains repentance. The goal remains restoration. The goal remains bringing the wayward back. But the one who continues to be unrepentant needs to be reminded that the refusal to repent in the Old Testament and the New is often the sign of an unbeliever. And at a minimum, it's a sign of unbelief in the process of church discipline. So how do we treat a tax collector and a Gentile? How do we treat an enemy? Well, we're told to love our enemies, to pray for them, to do good for them. Jesus loved unbelievers but he never compromised the truth of the gospel in doing so. He continually called for their faith and repentance. So, if there was a situation to arrive where someone was disciplined by the church, that would mean the undisciplined person. Everything is kind of froze up on me here. It means that the undisciplined person is welcome to come and hear the preaching of the word. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to hear the whole counsel of God but they're not to participate in the Lord's table, certainly not given a position of responsibility. We treat them as an unbeliever and engage them with the gospel and try to bring them to the cross of grace and truth. Okay, thank you. And now we get to our second major point, which is the theological authority of the church. The hope and plan at each step then is always for repentance and reconciliation and restoration, but the church must be ready to act if there is no sign of such. Now, we live in a permissive age. We live in an age of moral laxity. We live in a culture of ultimate autonomy and individuality. And such actions then of church discipline will be criticized as being cruel, judgmental, archaic. So how do we respond to charges like that? Can discipline even be done today? Well, if we sit under the authority of the word of God, then we say yes, and we need to figure out how it can be done in a way that's honoring to the Lord, honoring to the people involved, honoring to the gospel. But the church has the authority to do so, for our first point is that earth reflects heaven. Earth reflects heaven. Verse 18 says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so in the process of church discipline, of course, there will be prayer involved, consultations, counseling, pleading, time, effort, sweat, tears, emotion. It's a painful thing to consider. 
And so the church will seek to the face of God and seek his strength. And then it's under that divine direction that a decision will be made of who remains in and who is to be put out. And so we have this interesting statement, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Keep in mind the context. It's one of church discipline. This is not just your average prayer meeting. Not to be used at an evangelistic rally. There's been a number of times I've been involved in evangelism outreach and people want to use these verses as sort of demon hunting. We bind the demons who want to... That's not this text. You might find that elsewhere, but not here. This is church discipline that is being dealt with here. The context is forgiveness of sin. The context is confrontation of sin, seeking reconciliation, and based on how the person responds, whether they're held in their sin or they are set free. Very similar to the authority that we saw in Matthew 16. And in that case, in the, in the proclamation of the gospel, so whether it's the gospel is pronounced, will you repent or believe? Or church discipline, will you repent and come back? The church then reflects what has already been decided in heaven. Those who respond to the truth, those who repent of their sins, those who ask for forgiveness are given the assurance that forgiveness is lavish and full. But those that remain stiff-necked and stubborn remain in the guilt of their sins. And therefore... A better translation would be what has been bound on earth will already have been bound in heaven and what is loosed on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. It is earth that reflects what heaven has decided, not earth moving heaven to a decision. This is a heavy deal. It's a heavy responsibility. In the best sense of the word, it is awesome as we stand in the presence of a holy God. And therefore then, if we're going to do that in the presence of a holy God, we need the divine approval. The divine approval. Verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Keeping in mind the context. As the church gathers together, as the leaders gather together, as they ask, do we discipline or not? Do we take steps or do we not? As they seek the will of God and pray for guidance, if they're acting according to the laws of God, the ways of God, then God responds and gives his approval, blessing and strengthening those who desire to do things the right way according to his holy word. That's what it means here where two or more agree. It's in the context of church discipline. Now, in a very simple way, we can say that it must mean this because let's think of how it's commonly used. Sometimes you go to a prayer meeting and they say, well, Lord, as your word says, where two or more are gathered, there you are in the midst of us. Or where two or more you agree, God will grant what you agree. But if that's the case, if that's all it meant, now think about this with me. Long ago and many times since then, two or more Christians have agreed together that cancer would be healed, believers would have jobs, everyone would have suitable housing, and there would be world peace. We must, it must mean then that the context here is critical to understanding what is happening here. Keep in mind the necessity of two or three witnesses, the necessity of doing things in a lawful manner, in a, in a manner according to how God has carried it out, so that God will grant the strength and be honored in the process that dares to honor him. Because when we pray, we need to pray according to the will of God. 
We need to pray with unconfessed sin in our lives. We need to pray with pure motives in our hearts. We need to pray for the glory of God. Well, hopefully all of those things will be present in church discipline because this is such a painful thing. And so when we come together and two of us agree or more, God will give his divine approval to see that discipline and purity is maintained in the church. So if we have divine approval, we also need the divine presence where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, this is not primarily about the minimum quotient for a proper prayer meeting. It's not even a statement about the omnipresence of Jesus. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all the time, with all of his people in every situation. This is a very specific promise that as God's word is being carried out, and as he's being obeyed, and as it's being done in ways that are honored to him, he is there giving his approval. He is there encouraging his people because he is the head of of the church and that should encourage us as he strengthens us as he encourages us to do that which is hard he says if you do it the right way I'll be there to give my approval and bless with my presence now this is hard that's why in the history of the church it's been rarely done and rarely done well it's a process that takes time and commitment and energy and the will to do what is right regardless of the cost. We can find it far easier to compromise than to confront the sin that affects the unity and purity of the church. We can love men and love people and fear men and fear people more than we love and fear God. That we can actually slip into the habit of enabling people in their sins. I was at a Ligonier conference last, last April. And during the Q&A session, one of the pastors said the problem with so many of us as evangelicals today is we enable one another in our sins. He says, oh, that's just the way he is. Oh, she just acts that way. Oh, and we enable and encourage people to continue on in sinful behavior patterns that are not helpful to them and not helpful to the church. Are we willing to follow Jesus in the right path? even at the risk of losing some relationships? Do we love Jesus enough that we will confront people in their sin because we know what's best for them is to repent and to grow in holiness? If discipline is a sign of love, are we willing to be loving? I think all of us over the next period of time just need to keep looking at our hearts and say father help me i want to obey you i want to serve you i want to love you starting with me we all need to have that attitude before the lord on the other hand our culture because of its emphasis on the don't tread on me and leave me aloneism, we find that many who are facing or starting the process of church discipline just decide that it's far easier to just go across town to another church than to actually stay and go through the process of confrontation and reconciliation, of confession and restitution. Rather than sitting under the church's authority, they just want to continue on with what they want to do somewhere else. And that happens over and over again. It doesn't speak well of the church. We don't have a consistent practice of loving people enough to not only disciple them to become more like Jesus, but discipline them when they're erring. This is not 
an easy passage. This is not a popular subject. Some might even question whether it can be done today. Because our culture encourages bad behavior, careless speech, bravado behavior and activity. It celebrates such things often. But the context of Matthew 18 helps us. Jesus refers to believers as humble children, as little ones, as brothers, as wandering sheep who need to be brought back. And if that's how he responds to those who are his own, then this attitude of love and acceptance that Christ gives to us should move us to act in a similar way towards others. To be careful in how we speak. To be careful in how we live. So I close with this. We need to learn how to fight. But we need to learn how to fight like Christians. Fight for the truth. Fight for holiness. Fight for community. Fight for purity. Fight for greater honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, Jesus is going to continue to say what the church looks like, and he's going to pick up with this exact subject about how we're to practice forgiveness one towards another. And we'll be challenged again because our Lord loves us enough to challenge us with the truth. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away? Well, because we've been forgiven much, we ask God to make us ready to quickly forgive others. Overlook, bear with, let go, offer forgiveness as a way of life. If we must confront someone over sin, we ask the Lord to fill us first with mercy compassion and a forgiving spirit ourselves but because the process of discipline is difficult we ask the lord to give us strength and wisdom to carry it out not only correctly but lovingly and we stand as a people before a holy god who gives us his whole counsel to follow because discipline is a divine command we depend on the presence of christ to honor him as we carry it out and our knees knock, and our legs shake, and our heart palpitates, and it shows how much we depend on him to do all of this. And if we are the ones who have sinned, may the Lord enable us to receive correction and exhortation humbly and gratefully. Father, as we turn to you in these moments, we recognize that you love us so much that you speak hard truth to us so that we see our need for you, get beyond our self-dependency. And Father, you are the sounder of all hearts. So would you go deeply into the hearts of each one of us today and this week and continue to root out that which is not honoring to you. And Father, our desire, you have commanded us as a people to not only be unified because we're one in Christ, but to be holy because you are holy. And Father, how we need you. And how we turn to you now and plead with you for mercy and grace as we commit ourselves to you. Because we need you. And because you are able. In Jesus' name, amen.